1: Hello and welcome back to Close to Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going?
2: It's going great. I almost lost my headset today. And then that would have been sad because then I have to use my other ear pods that echo. But then they were in my daughter's spider bathroom. So my daughter, she
0: has yeah, can you just go ahead and sort of fly yeah,
1: and pass that? A bunch that. of leaves yes. have just been buried. <laughs> so,
2: so Lucy has this bathroom that she she doesn't want any spiders to die in the house. And so she catches them and puts them in her bathroom. So that is where the headset
0: was.
1: Your so, daughter is a unique yes. young woman. So, like, I hold know. on a second, though. Hold on, yeah. hold on. That's weird. Like, that's a pretty yeah. strange thing. Like, she collects the spiders. She puts them in a spider room. She's keeping them. She's nurturing them. Because she doesn't her. want me to kill but, them.
3: Yeah, right. like, so she... She wants you yeah. to die
1: instead. So, um...
3: Right? Thank you.
1: This so, always- but, but this is the weird part here. All mm-hmm. of that's fine and strange and the subject of the <laughs> story and I love it and I'm fine with it. But why were your headset? Why was your headset in the spider bathroom?
3: Well, mm-hmm. I have
2: theories on that, several theories. I'm not really sure. Lucy tells me that the only thing she's put in the spider bathroom are spiders and mm-hmm. not my headset. So I think is it was my Jack son. Thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Jack. And I think it was because he borrowed my headset without asking, which is fine, in order to play Fortnite. So he's only allowed to play Fortnite. <laughs> In the spider
1: bathroom. In the spider room, yeah.
2: I think so. Two times a week, he's allowed to play with his buddy from his class at school. And it's like he has one hour to play Fortnite, which is apparently not enough time, but I don't care. So (laughs) I, I don't know... I don't know because the iPad and the headset were in the spider bathroom. So I have some things to follow up with and I'll keep y'all posted.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's a podcast <laughs> I listen to at the end of it. They have something called Parent Corner yes. where two guys tell stories about how terrible their kids are. Um, so we might need to start something about how interesting our kids are.
0: Um, hey, could I just float another theory out there for you, Heidi? That maybe yeah,
1: I was hoping I was going to turn to you and ask if you had any theories on this. Right. Now, what if the spiders
0: are just like, you know, huge Grim Green fans? oh man oh wow, let's now i'm having like a right.
1: rod yeah no, let's, <laughs> what what if in spider world spider verse spiders <laughs> in your daughter's spider bathroom are hosting the alternative spider world close reads podcast this is Whoa. my favorite
2: theory i like this one best <sighs>
1: I don't Guys, know this wow. is
2: an unfolding saga yes
1: it so, is i think probably we should dedicate this whole episode to that but our <laughs> listeners have expectations so we are going to yeah. set right our our episode today actually meeting the expectations of our listeners and their expectation is that we're going to answer their questions about graham green's the power and the glory so mm-hmm. i think we should do that we should um you have sent your questions in via facebook and by email and such so we have plenty of plenty to talk about today um just want to remind everybody that if you would like to be able to do that in the future, you can send in questions via email to us at closereadspodcasts@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's our new email address for that. Or you can do so on the Facebook page. A couple of people emailed me asking me about how they could get to the Facebook page. And all you got to do is go to facebook.com and type in close reads in the, uh, in the search bar and they should pop up. If you can't find it, you can email and we can send you the direct link. Uh, but it should be pretty easy to find and you can join that and we will approve you as a member and you can take part in the wonderful conversation that is happening over there. Um, also, please make sure that you are subscribing and that you are writing reviews and that you are leaving starred reviews. Um, please do so. If you have not done that in a while or ever, please do leave us a review. I can't overstate how uh, much that helps us out, uh, when you, when you leave those kind of, um, that kind of feedback, uh, it helps our egos when you give us good feedback, but it also helps the uh, the algorithms that help people find us and get us higher up on the charts and help us um, continue to make these. We, we are happy to make these for the seven of you who normally listen, but we'd probably, <laughs> probably be best if we uh, continue to grow the audience. And you can help us do that by uh, making sure you have clicked that subscribe button on whatever app you use or by leaving a starred review or a written review, both of which help us immensely. So, okay, that stuff's out of the way um let's talk about the power and the glory we have a number of questions um tim the thing is yes. though you didn't you didn't get to tell us how you were yet so i want to Oh make i'm sure great i'm tip top terrific
0: i'm right in the middle of my writing season uh and so all i think about from the time that i wake up until the time i go to bed is writing writing speeches and now i can see the light at the end of the tunnel I'm not there yet, but I can see it and I will be doing much better than I won't be completely preoccupied with just generating. Can I just tell you guys, I don't know if I said this last week, I calculated how many pages I've written in the last five and a half weeks, 170 pages. Oh, wow. Which is a lot. It's a lot.
2: That's a lot. How much cutting and pasting do you do, do you think? From one page to another,
0: <laughs> wait, what do you mean? what do you mean
2: like do you have a template that you or do you write each one individually?
0: Oh, oh oh no, I write each one individually no that's that's a slight exaggeration. There's one of one of the speeches that is kind of part of the package that I produced is templated
2: okay,
3: Temp-
0: templated and but all of the other ones
3: that's amazing,
0: just, Tim.
2: You should be really proud of yourself. Good job.
0: I it's exhausting. I'm it's sure so <laughs> exhausting.
1: Anyway, is it, is it as exhausting as running from a evil lieutenant in tw- 19? It's not. 1930s. Uh, not that.
0: Ex- it's not that <laughs> exhausting.
1: <Okay>. Well, <laughs> but but I find
0: myself wanting to do stupid, not stupid things, but like wanting to watch Netflix comedy series because mm-hmm. I'm just so brain dead that I can't really concentrate on anything else yeah yeah
1: let's talk well, about the power and the glory yeah, let's have let's ask yeah. you to concentrate on that okay so first <laughs> question here um what do you guys make of the one this is from tani what do you make of the one word ten hears the whiskey priest say at his execution uh that being excuse and is it a noun or a verb she asks how do you go first yeah
2: i i really like this question and i, I fully intended to google this and because as I rely
1: on somebody else to answer it
2: I exactly rely but then I'm <laughs> forced back on my own thoughts so um I have assumed in the times that I have read this novel so I do I do not know this but I have assumed that it's some kind of reference to uh, a contrition prayer or some kind of something like that that was just misunderstood um by tench but it was something in the context of his prayers of contrition and repentance as he goes to the firing squad but that is pure speculation on my part
0: i speculated the exact same way the exact same way Hmm. Do do you have something different david
1: no um one thing that it does say is that you know perhaps his mouth was too dry because nothing came out except a word that sounded like ex- excuse or excuse. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think uh, probably, I mean, if you wanted to do like a psychological reading, you could, you could start thinking about like, is Tench projecting something when he sees based on what he may or may not mm-hmm. be hearing i think you could read that word either way i think this is a classic example of graham green not giving us an answer but giving us possibility you know um, yes and yes. i, I yes. like you know erica commented responded on facebook she mentioned that she read it as a reference to the spanish uh, perdonar meaning which means to forgive and also to mm-hmm. excuse depending on the context so you know i think that's that's certainly an interesting um an interesting take and i think it's Right, Probably something to that. But I do think Green, you know, I think a lot of our answers to these questions are going to be, well, Green is not, I mean, Graham Green is not really in the business of giving us answers. He's given the business of giving us possibilities, which is why his work has lasted.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, either way, it's an intentional word, right? That calls to mind either making excuses for oneself or begging for pardon in some way and being in the request to be excused and both of those uh go along with the graham green subtext throughout this whole novel
1: mm. um i do it is very it is interesting and, and and um dramatic to to imagine him like as he's about to get shot he's almost like trying to say excuse excuse like stop you know he's like almost trying to put his hands up right as they're mm-hmm. gonna shoot him so there's some there's huh. some pathos in that as well like he's trying to express something one way or the other and but it's being taken in through tension's perspective so that kind of colors it a little bit we're not in his head anymore um which is interesting that we get in his head and then but then in the final moments we're not in his head anymore we're in the perspective of somebody who's not even that close to it right um Mm -hmm. So, okay. Aaron asks, is baby Kern here yet? As of this recording, um, no, <laughs> he's not here yet. Um, this, we're recording Wednesday at f- it's four o'clock Wednesday. East, well, that's Eastern time. And as of now, she is officially a day late and she should hurry up and, and make her presence. Um, well, she's, <laughs> made, she's made her presence known for a long time, but she should, um, you know, go ahead reveal and get, herself. Reveal herself. Yeah. So uh, thanks for asking Aaron and thanks to everyone who has been... Uh, checking in on us, we appreciate that. Okay, speaking of daughters, Ilya, I I think it's Ilya, asks, why does the priest see his daughter as completely irredeemable? He manages to hold hope for just about everyone, even the lieutenant and the mestizo, and yet seems to take it as absolute fact that his own daughter, whom he wishes to redeem more than any other person, is hopelessly lost. Is that his own conviction blinding him, or are we supposed to believe it is true? Um, And then Heidi says, this is a fantastic question. Um, so Heidi, therefore you get to answer it first.
2: (laughs) I loved this question because this is my, this is my main unanswered question for this novel is this exact question. Um, as most of our listeners know, it's one of my favorite novels. I've read it several times, but this question haunts me. Uh, And I, I think there were so many of the questions that were asked by the readers that were interpretive questions that I'm sure we've all had, right? That we're like, I don't know what to make of that. That is still a question mark in my mind. And this is one of them. I think part of that could be addressed with the issue of the, that the child was conceived in mortal sin and therefore perhaps there's some, you know, sense in the priest. Uh, although this is not Catholic theology necessarily, there may be some sense in him that because she's been conceived in mortal sin, that she carries a greater burden of original sin, but that would be entirely in his own mind, right? So, um, mm. and in his his fear, his guilt, whatever is coloring that, or uh, the question she asks at the end, uh, are we supposed to believe that this is true? I, I'm not convinced that, we're supposed to believe this is true. And in many cases, the priest has shown himself to be an unreliable narrator. Uh, And so maybe we don't have to believe that. Maybe that is a misconception that the priest has. So I I love this question and I'm gonna leave it as a question because this is my main unanswered question of the novel as well.
0: And Heidi, you're you're confident that he, let me back up. I, I apparently did not read this part closely enough because i have been reading it as he's just afraid of his daughter existing in the world existing in the world and especially without her father being around like right. a kind of um magnified uh worry that probably every father has but he just feels it more acute because he's no, he knows that he's not going to be he's not going to be around but you think, and the person who asked the question thinks, it's graver than that?
2: Well, and I'm trying to find, I'm flipping through. David, if you find
1: 207 it. 207 and 208 okay. is where he last okay. thinks about her. Here, yeah. I'll, I'll go yeah, ahead go and ahead. read it while you're looking. Yeah. As the, so it's where the priest sits on the floor. He's got the brandy. and was right before his dream. As the liquid touched his tongue, he remembered his child coming in out of the glare, the sullen, unhappy, knowledgeable face. He said, oh God, help her. Damn me, I deserve it, but let her live forever. This was the love he should have felt for every soul in the world. All the fear and the wish to save concentrated unjustly on the one child. He began to weep. It was as if he had watched her from the shore drown slowly because he had forgotten how to swim. He thought, this is what I should feel all the time for everyone. And he tried to turn his brain away toward the half-caste, the lieutenant, Even a dentist dentist he had once met, or once sat with for a few minutes. The child at the banana station calling up a long succession of faces, pushing at his attention as if it were a heavy door which wouldn't budge. For those were all in danger too. He prayed, God help them. But in the moment of prayer, he switched back to his child beside the rubbish dump, and he knew it was for her only that he prayed. Another failure.
2: Right, well, in the mother, Maria, she... She gives the child, the Brigida, the most, like the strongest words of condemnation that anybody does
1: in the much, much earlier, right? Yes, on but page she,
2: yeah. seventy-nine. Um,
1: when what did he, she say?
2: She says she'll never be good for anything. You can see that. He replies, "She can't be very bad at her age." And then, oh, and she'll go on the way she's begun. That's Maria again. And he said, the next Mass I say will be for her. Hmm. She wasn't even listening. She said she's bad through and through. He was aware of faith dying out between the bed and the door and there's another point in the novel in which he seems to agree with Maria's assessment of the child um, he says he could see that the world is in her heart like a spot of decay and fruit um, but the strongest words of condemnation really do come from Maria the own mother her own mother the child's own mother um, but you're right some of it is just his fear and maybe that is, maybe he's so afraid that he can't see past his fear, but he does seem to be more condemning of the child than he is of anybody else in the novel. If, Would you guys agree with that?
1: Condemning. yeah. Yes. That's I don't, I'm not sure I, I'm sure I follow that. Condemning I, I is
2: maybe too strong, more like giving up on. Maybe con, condemning is way too strong because condemning implies malice.
1: But yeah. this, is this passage I read even about other people as much as it is about him?
2: No, that's a great question.
1: Like I don't read, I don't read, like I don't believe Green is suggesting something about these other characters so much as it's suggesting something about his own um, self-consciousness, his own fear. So like, because he, he, he's, he's processing his, his own selfishness and for him to even think of her above anyone else. You know, to be primarily concerned with her and not other people is a selfishness. That that's a sin in and of itself, is what he's saying. Right?
2: Yeah.
3: That so it is doesn't seem
1: to me that I this guess. is a passage that's about her. It's a passage that's about him. It's about him coming to terms with himself. It's a sort of confession about his own selfishness. And I don't. Mm-hmm. So I don't. I don't personally see it as a condemnation of her. Um,
2: condemnation was the wrong word. I guess he does seem to be the most worried about her salvation. He doesn't seem to see her the same with the same he has this desperate right. love and fear for her but he the way he what he sees in her is this the world is in her heart like decay and fruit and he is so afraid she's going to be lost not just because she's in a scary world but because of something in
1: her well i mean so how does that um balance out with some of the things we talked about with coral because i mean right. this book is about decay you know yes right
2: Right. Well, and I think that those two are juxtaposed. Those two characters are, are juxtaposed with each Mm -hmm. other in a way that we, Mm -hmm. these two girls, um, but he doesn't even remember Coral's name, but she's the one who saves, who saved, right. But he has this desperate love for his daughter, but somehow he knows and I'm putting, you know, look, see my air quotes. I'm not saying (laughs) he really knows it, but he quote knows, that she's going to be lost. And Ilya's question is, why? Why is that? And I don't know.
1: Wait, I, don't, I, st- I still don't. Wait, he know. What do you mean he knows she's going to be lost?
2: He talks as if he is convinced in his own heart that Brigida is lost.
0: I hear that. I hear that in the novel.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I, I guess I, I, so for me, I think that the, the, there's a, just a distinction between, um, someone who knows he's not going to be around, and fearing that that might happen, as opposed to like, believing that that might happen, that that's what's happened,
0: as opposed to like a deep confidence that it's inevitable or something like that.
1: Yeah, so like he knows he's not going to be around. He knows that that what's the things she's surrounded by and the things that she has at her disposal, are not. Like without some great, some kind of great grace, um, that she's going to be ultimately in trouble. But isn't that kind of what the book's about? Like that, that without that kind of great grace, that's what that's what everyone's the inevitab- inevitability for everyone. And that's why in the end, the book is just sort of, sort of fundamentally hopeful because the priest returns. You know, there's always the, the church that that new priest comes and the boy kisses his hand. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, you know, ultimately the book is about how there is that sort of grace available
2: right yes absolutely
1: i don't know i think we maybe probably more we more agree than anything Um,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah but yeah i mean it's tough one to to answer so we're going to move on now um unless either of you wants to add something Mm -mm. okay so brandon asks i assume jokingly which character is the power and which is the glory um but then that got me thinking like that's kind of actually an interesting question so what do you make of the title
2: Sam, you got to go first on this one. Uh,
0: an allusion to the Lord's Prayer. Sure. Yeah, I think. Yeah, And I, I think the whole book is um, the opposite. It's like a demonstrable opposite to any sense of God's power and glory on earth and any sense of demonstrable power and glory for God's church. Until we kind of get a glimmer of what at the end of the book of um, what the priest suffering has has brought about in the world, so I think it's a um, it's a it's an obviously it's an allusion to the Lord's Prayer, and I think it's kind of a wink at what that it's a glance at what that actually looks like in real time in a in a horrible situation, um, living under an oppressive power.
2: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I, I catch that too. the play on words there. It's, there's no question mark in the title, but it's the title connected to this particular story raises a lot of questions. So what does, what do you mean by power? What do you mean by glory? Um, does, is it that the lieutenant represents earthly power and the priest kind of represents this eternal glory, or is—I mean, that—that's—that's that's certainly an interpretive option. But yeah. I think there's more to it than that. I think it's raising questions about the nature of power, whether earthly or divine, uh, and the ultimate results. You know, what is glory?
1: And, you know, I think the ending tells us a lot as well. So if it's, it's about the nature of power, then you're kind of looking at the nature of powers, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. One, one thing be more powerful than the other. And ultimately we get the suggestion that the sort of highest power is the power of grace and God, God's grace and God's love and God's glory ultimately, because the, well, the final image we get is this priest coming back. And I think that, you know, that's, or this new priest arriving and that's, you know green wants that to linger for a reason so whatever the power is the lieutenant wields whatever power that the um this this impressed this oppressive regime impressive as well uh wields um is not as powerful as you know this sort of ultimate power yeah ultimate power that is shrouded in an ultimate glory and um that it's a glory that that's why i think that the um the book talks, you know, there's this sort of running theme of the sort of image of God in, in this book, even if it's mm-hmm. not directly. And I think that there's, the, I think that that's tied to this sense of glory. And I also think that it, this is a kind of a journey book, right? There's a, there's a quest going on here. And I think that that's, the title is playing into that as well, that this is a character who is constantly in search of both power and glory and both negative in negative and positive senses. Hmm. Uh, and I think that he is after the glory um the kind of glory that that god gives us and the kind of power but you know in the same way he he has wielded power as a priest before um and he has had respect and a sort of glory but you know there's that dichotomy between good glory and bad glory and even between power and glory i I think all those things are at play which is you know this book was not originally published in america as the power and the glory
0: yeah we mentioned that during the first episode didn't we yeah it was, uh, the wait, what was the title? The labyrinth, yeah, labyrinth. His, his labyrinthine ways. So, yeah, la, yeah, yep. yeah. Yeah, it's the
1: labyrinthine ways, yeah.
2: Wow. Well, that doesn't work as well. <laughs> <in the> glory.
0: <laughs> and just yes. getting that middle word out of your mouth is just such a labor. Mm-hmm. It,
1: yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah.
0: You started to make a joke, didn't you, David? Yeah. Burned,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Did you think better of it in the, right in the middle of it?
1: Yeah, you know. We'll move on. Um, <laughs> s- some jokes are less funny than others. Um, or they're only funny to the person who's saying them. So Ilya asks another question. She says, why is the priest so ruled by his fear of the pain of death if the rest of the pains of life don't seem to affect him? The man in the jail, jail cell says a toothache is worse than being shot. We see the priest with the worst teeth has ever seen, enduring fe- fever, starvation, injury, etc., and not even giving them much notice until they affect his ability to function. And yet the fear of pain drives him all the way to the end. Why is that? And That's another
2: I, great question.
0: You know, I, I'm going to, there's part of the question that I'm going to dispute that he doesn't. Um, okay. I'm looking at the online. Um, He's enduring fever, starvation, injury doesn't give them much notice until they affect his ability to function. I don't know about that. I I think that he is hurting, and I think he does complain about it. It may not be, like, the chief preoccupation of his interior monologues, but, boy, I sure remember a lot of occasions where he's hurting and he gives voice to it. I think he, like, he... The book is about him struggling to overcome those pains, exhaustion, et cetera, to continue his task. Um, but I don't know that he doesn't complain about them or that they don't bother him.
2: Right. Well, they're, they're, the life of these people is particularly characterized by physical hardship, right? We talked about that a lot in the beginning of the, uh, the discussion on this book that this is a poverty-stricken area in which the people suffer from the land. We talked a lot at the very beginning of of the podcast about this book, about the the land, the heat, the water, the disease, the, Mm the oppressive nature of the landscape. And so some of it may be just they're used to it, right? Like there's, it's not the same you know, like if it dips below 70 degrees, I'm like freezing and completely, you know, if I'm not, if I don't get a yeah. snap. I'm probably not
1: live right. in the state you live in.
2: I, I, right. Thank you. This is an ongoing conversation also, I have. Also, you
1: should probably right. not live in the state in the United States that you live in. <sighs>
2: yeah, it's true. I'm just, I'm just like a big giant baby about physical hardship. But <laughs> because I live in it, because I have the option of being comfortable all the time. These people don't, like there's no sense of... Of that, um,
0: they've developed thicker skins.
2: Yeah, so maybe some of it is that. Um, but I think the point that she's bringing up is valid. It's that you know he's sitting in the jail cell and he's uncomfortable, but he's not demanding that because he's a priest he should have a more comfortable place. Why don't you guys make room for me? You know, like there's um, there there is a sense of acceptance of the fact that his life is characterized by suffering which i think in some ways goes to the idea of penance maybe um hmm. and that he's kind of un- terribly uncomfortable in suffering in his body as a way of kind of expiating this sacramental call you know life that he has like he's got to he doesn't want to and so in some sense if he's uncomfortable, he's paying for that in some way. He doesn't yeah. say that though. That's not really a tone of the novel. So hmm. maybe I disagree with myself.
1: Hmm. <laughs> it's interesting how even to the end he is, he is consumed with, is it going to hurt? to die? Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. For Why sure. It,
1: what do you think of that? Like he even asks the Lieutenant at the end, you know, people, you've seen a lot of people get shot. How long does the pain last? why is he so consumed with that specific idea of like how long is the pain going to last? How much is it going to hurt? I mean, is, besides the fact that everybody's probably consumed with that to some degree.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe
1: it's just- I, I took it as just he,
0: yeah, I took it as just the simple face value. He does not want to endure a long, difficult death. Yeah. Like, is there something spiritually going on there? Maybe that's, is that kind of, that seems like that's the looming question. Is there something?
2: Right. Is it symbolic of something? Is it kind of getting to some of that Graham Green subtext? I didn't read it that way. I just, I read it in a very simple human. I'm afraid of being in pain.
0: Whereas he certainly worries about his, the state of his soul. Certainly. I just, I think that, um, and those two things are not completely separate from each other, but I think his worry about the longevity of being shot, the pain of being shot is the same worry that I would have if I were facing a gun. Man, is this going to take a long time? Is this going to really hurt? I hope not.
1: I think what it does is it, you know, um, Green, Graham Green was also a screenwriter. And I think when you're working in areas where Say you're writing a screenplay or a play, you're always looking for like, what are lines, what are things that they're going to say that can humanize them. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways it does that. You know, in a screenplay, you're as far as the audience is concerned. I mean, you can have you have to have them do something or say something that makes them seem more human. In a novel, you can describe it or get in their head a little bit more or whatever. But I think that the the biggest accomplishment there is it makes him seem like a real person. I think at times he can feel. A like an sort of archetype, or B like sort of like a cipher, you know. But mm-hmm. these kind of things make him seem like a real person who has real fear, mm-hmm. you know. Makes him seem like a per- like a real human being.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, I agree.
1: Uh, let's see. You guys want to move on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Tara asks uh, or Tara, what was going on with the dream the priest remembered during mass in the middle of part three, chapter one? It, uh, I, I took it as a premonition of what was going to happen next i.e. the return of the half-caste but it seemed very strange
0: this is the dream where he is correct me if i'm wrong remembering um it's a dream of him doing his priestly functions uh he's remembering kind of some of his studies is that correct is that the the dream that we're talking about
2: well part three chapter one is when he's in the jail
1: it's what she said here she said it backwards from what i've been saying she said chapter one part three so i think that's what she's not yeah, part three two. chapter one
3: well it says no, part not
1: three. not part one, not but, part well, one her, chapter yeah chapter one part three <laughs> well
2: her comment says part three chapter one
1: yeah
2: but there's a couple different dreams there's one that he has If she's talking about the one during mass, well, there's, I mean, Graham Greene uses dreams a lot in all of his novels. Someone is having dreams that are very, very symbolic. Uh, So every single one of them is significant. The one when he, in part three, chapter one, when he's in jail, he has a dream. And then there's also one in which he's sitting at a table with the women in the altar
0: guild. That's the one that I was thinking of, the second one. Which one do you think that she's talking about, Heidi? I don't know. Yeah.
2: We could talk about both of them, I guess.
1: Well, let's see here. So, part three.
2: There's one when he can't remember the password. That's the one when he's in the jail.
1: Yeah, but let's see. So, everyone can feel free to just skip ahead 30 seconds. Yeah. Part three, chapter one. So, he's with... That's when he's with the lairs.
2: I know. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Is that page 92?
1: No. I'm looking at... Oh, I know what she's (laughs) talking about. What's she talking about, hiding?
2: Hold on. Is it... When he's in mass... Okay. I don't have a table of contents part two chapter one i just have to thumb through because my book doesn't right. have a table of contents
1: part three chapter one is like 172 in that range and that's when he's doing the mass in the town where the lairs live oh okay that's
0: that's the one that's the one
1: yeah and i'm trying to find the, i'm trying to find a the specific dream though um
0: Okay, in my page 178. Uh actually it begins 177. He had no vestments but the masses in this village. Um he remembered a dream that he had of a big grassy area lined with the statues of the saints, but the saints were alive. They turned their eyes this way and that waiting for something. He waited too with an awful expectancy. Bearded Peters and Pauls with bibles pressed to their breasts. Watched some entrance behind his back. He couldn't see. It had the menace of a beast. Then a marimba began to play tinkly and repetitive. A firework exploded and Christ danced into the arena, danced and postured with a bleeding face, the bleeding painted face up and down, up and down, grimacing like a prostitute, smiling and suggestive. He woke with a sense of complete despair, that a man not, might feel finding the only money he possessed was counterfeit. It's
1: one 176 If you didn't, if you did yeah. it Yeah. Or this is a dream within a, re, like he's remembering a dream within a specific. Mm-hmm. Right. So like right. layers of reality going on here.
2: Right. So I have always read that as being his temptation to leave Tabasco and go and become what he once was. That the Christ that he's seeing is a false Christ. Mm. The Christ in the dream is a false Christ who's tempting him back to this false life, the life of pride and um, being fake.
1: Well, and right before that, he says... It says a virtuous man can almost cease to believe in hell, but he carried a hell about with him. Sometimes yes. at night he dreamed of it. Evil ran like malaria in his veins. And then the line you said, he remembered a dream that he had had of a big... So he's mm-hmm. saying that that dream is about hell.
2: Yes. Yeah, but the hell, the hell within him, right? The hell of being right. tempted to go back to the sickness of his pride and the falsity of the life that he lived before this purifying experience—that's um, actually going to lead him to the cross, right? Uh, the true cross. Um, so, if he goes back, I'm thinking about that—that that whole idea of once you have tasted of heavenly glory, if you go back, you're lost, right? So that I think that's always how I've interpreted this dream as he's now he could just leave and go back but he as she points out um tara what as she points out it is this is what he could choose instead of going forward when the mestizo comes and tells him that there's man who needs your prayers
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well it's also about the the idea that what he's always believed in is is false, right? and He says that he woke with a sense of complete despair that a man might feel finding the only money he possessed was counterfeit. So that, like, the dream sort of makes a mockery of the things that he's believed in. And then, but then, right after that, he gets to the point in the, in the mass where he says. So he wakes up and then he realizes he's remembering that he remembers when he wakes up and then he says in the mass, "And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." Mass was over.
2: Right. Well, and then he talks about three days, right?
1: Yeah.
0: That paragraph might be worth reading. Do you guys mind if I read that? please. Three days he told himself, I shall be in Las Casas. I shall have confessed and been absolved. And the thought of the child on the rubbish heap came automatically back to him with painful love. What was the good of confession when you loved the result of your crime?
2: Right. There's so much going on here. I do I do think David that you're on to something about the the counterfeit but I think I I'm interpreting this as everything has been stripped away except the primitive cross in his mind and he has a choice in this moment or he's about to face a choice he hasn't had to face it yet but he's about to face a choice is it going to am I going to go back to the counterfeit Or am I going to go forward for the three days, right? Those, the three days he's going to be in Las Casas or he's going to, um, you know, he's, he's going to go to martyrdom and walk the Via Dolorosa like Christ.
0: I feel like we're kind of like, we're in a in a little bit of a gray, it's not a gray area. It's just, there's so many things happening at this moment that we're kind of zinging to a variety of different explanations. And I think the variety of them account for like different kind of like shifting themes within the story.
2: Right. Right. Cause that's, I mean, a lot of these questions on this thread are about the subtext that are entirely interpretive.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Hey, Heidi, let's go to the next question. Um, the naming throughout the book. It says, I'd love to have more. So this is Jill Courser. Now that we're through the book, I'd love to hear more about the naming anonymity. Why do we know certain characters' names, but not others? And the last thing where the new priest arrives is interrupted before he can say his name perfect um so she's her question is naming and anonymity why are certain characters names given but others not the only ones that i remember not being given were the whiskey priest and the priest that arrives on the last page are, are there others that i'm not thinking of
2: well the lieutenant
0: the lieutenant
2: and the mestizo
0: yeah half cast
2: mm-hmm. yeah so the three main
0: characters. Gosh, right.
1: So why is that? <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, it's...
1: Well, let me ask you, this doesn't matter.
2: Um, I don't I think, think it, it matters. Go ahead, Tim.
0: I think it adds to kind of like a, a sense of mythos in the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, that the, the characters are unnamed. I don't think it just gives them an everyman quality. I would say it gives them a sort of um, almost like it it inflates their, their shadow or inflates their personas so that they seem to loom larger over the named characters.
1: Mm-hmm. It's also role-based, right? Like the lieutenant is known for what lieutenants do, and the priest is the whiskey priest yeah. is known for, you know, what priests do, but also with that tag to it, right? Yeah. Um, how people understand them and see them and know them is kind of their the names that they are given is sort of irrelevant. They're they're not they're not really part of who they are anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they're defined by something different than what they've been called or named or whatever. And there's there's something like pretty tragic about that as well, actually.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: So do you think that there is a Beatles bathroom somewhere in this book? Um, Because the next question is, what's the deal with the Beatles? They were exploding under feet and against walls. This is from Kim. Too much for me to ignore, but I have no idea what to make of it.
0: Man, I hear Kim on this. I hear Kim on this. Like so often the Beatles were exploding against the wall. And just when you think you're done with the Beatles, they're exploding against the wall and under feet. But I don't think... There's I don't think there's anything else going on here. I think it's just like the dog gnawing on the bone. It might just be simply that.
1: Well, it, I mean, that's I actually prefer that reading to like the symbology of it. Uh-huh. But isn't isn't the beetle like there's something in Egypt or something that the beetle matters spiritually or something that maybe he's borrowing from
2: the scarab kind of like thing
1: if we if we google it maybe we can find something maybe um so you like the one way you could read it is exactly what tim says like there's or if you want to dig deeper you can you can google it and you can i mean a lot of these things he, he probably was familiar enough with with the uh with the symbol but here's the thing like <laughs> a symbol oh there's a reason why symbols attain a certain degree of meaning, right? And it's because they are rooted to something real, the image, the image, like a poet puts an image in there because it, for a very specific reason to express something very specific and very narrow. And then that be, that takes on the context of some symbolism um, throughout a tradition. So my guess is like, whether it's in Egypt or whether it's in Mexico, the Beatles take on a certain degree of symbolic symbolism that, be meaningful only because of their existence in reality, right? So, like uh-huh. the beetles are because the beetles mean something in real life, they can mean something as a symbol. They take that on over the course of time and over the course of tradition. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I actually think you have to start for, for you, it, it's one thing for me to go out and to research it and be like, well, the beetle, there's the scarab, there's this Egypt thing, and like there's, you can create this equation and it means a very specific thing, right? You can, I can state that sort of. Like I can say that as a fact, but it doesn't mean anything unless I start where you're talking, Tim. Right. Unless I recognize it as a thing in the story that has meaning in and of itself, Mm -hmm. aside from the symbolism of it, aside from the symbology of it, um, it has to mean something there first for it to actually matter that it means something archetypal. Right. I I think that, like I'm not saying the question's not good, but I think the first place we have to start when you're reading something like this is with the area that, with with the place that Tim is trying to narrow in on.
2: Right. Well, I think that, I think you're right. And I also think sometimes as, I mean, you guys know this, you're writers, um, sometimes something just adds to the atmosphere as you're imagining it in a story and you're not sure why. But then if you write it into your poem or into your story in some way, it does take on a life, right? And I'll give you an example that actually has to do with bugs. So I wrote this short story because uh, I had...
1: called The Spider Bathroom.
2: It's called The Spider Bathroom. I do have this you guys can try to figure out my bug thing. So I had heard this story. This is a true story from history that there's this area in Southeast Colorado that during the Dust Bowl, during the years of the great depression, it was overwhelmed. Like there was like a locust infestation in this area where all these small towns were in Colorado. And uh, so there's grasshoppers, like millions of them and there's no crops anyway but there's these grasshoppers starving like and and they were out there and just attacking people and they were giant like two inch long gross locusts so the um, the National Guard came in with flamethrowers to try to kill all these locusts because wow. they were spreading disease and it, that story just captured my imagination. I just, the image of these grasshoppers, like just attacking these small towns that were already devastated by famine Mm. that were then, that caused so much further devastation that they were attacked by this army of people. There's something about that. And as, because I didn't know why it captured my imagination, kind of wrote, and then the story came out of it, right? So sometimes, and I think the Beatles have a little bit of that quality that that maybe they're, they add to this idea, whether they're symbolic or not, I don't know, but they in some ways add to this idea of like this surplus of life that can just be easily crunched underfoot by the people there that don't matter, that are exploding into the walls and no one cares because it's so hot and so oppressive, mm-hmm. right? So it adds to the atmosphere of this oppressive story about... Power and filth and vermin, right? And, right, and it's yeah.
0: such a powerful image, and it and it conveys the atmosphere of Mexico so profoundly mm-hmm. that it has sort of like an aroma of a symbol.
2: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah like that. Exactly. Like I could see him writing it with these beetles. I mean, I have no idea how this happened, but. As as writers, you can see yourself doing that, right? Like you come up with this poem, and then something kind of makes its way in there because it adds to the atmosphere. It's not really a symbol, but it 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 matters a lot.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, if you are putting something, if 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 a writer, a poet, or writer, whatever sort of art you're doing, if you're putting something in there to be a symbol, you're wasting everybody's time. Right. Right. That's <laughs> my opinion. So, like, think about it. Like, so I just sent Heidi a poem today that I'm working on actually, and it's right now it's pretty bad, but. It's like the concept is I was thinking about how when I was a kid, we had this this snow day. It was literally negative 50 degrees outside in Wisconsin. Couldn't go to school. And I remember standing up in my parents' bedroom on the second floor, looking down on the street, which was normally pretty busy, and watching these cars go by at like three miles an hour like because there's ice everywhere. And I remember turning to my dad and saying, when we go to heaven, I was probably eight or something. When we go to heaven, well, we know that we're there. Like well, i I was so I'm asking this question about consciousness, right?
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I remember like being aware of it for the first time at that point, and like these questions began to really bother me. So I started write this poem about that. And then I started thinking about I was just kind of laying out the situation that this there's this storm, and it got me and while the storm was there, it got me thinking about these weighty issues, right? Mm-hmm. Then I started thinking about how I started just kind of exploring that. And as I'm exploring it, it starts to be kind of become clear that. The image of like a big storm blowing in and blowing away like innocence or something and bringing in these deep questions is kind of an interesting image. But mm-hmm. I'm not sitting there thinking, I've got th- I've got to come up with a symbol that's going to express how, as right. a kid, I started thinking about complicated things. Right? If I'm doing that, I'm that's that's not that's not um, that's not any that's not I don't know that's not art.
2: <laughs> right? It's contrived. Right? right? Yes.
1: And so, like those, so it kind of it became that it became an image that was that was both useful and interesting to me to explore, but it's not a symbol, you know. Right now, I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. it becomes it becomes a symbol when it becomes part of a of the this of the context of the tradition, right? And so maybe it's a symbol, but like an artist doesn't create an artist does not create symbols. An artist creates images. Mm -hmm. A symbol is something that is representative represented by the tradition as part of a conversation. No artist goes well. No real artist, in my opinion. I'm just putting this strongly. Goes out there to create symbols. Artists deal. Artists don't deal in symbols. They deal in images. Right. Um, and I think that that's what it becomes a symbol. Well, I've said it already. It becomes a symbol because right. of the tra- tradition.
2: Right. Well, and the Beatles are a great example of that idea of an image that there's like, it's particularly powerful in where when it's used in the power and the glory. Um, that I, there's something about that. Like these patterning little creatures but they're still just this they're gross but they're somehow connected to the land like it, it there's a lot of emotional weight to
1: mm-hmm. the
2: beetles the same way there is to you know the the, the locusts devastating yeah. a devastating land or whatever however it is that we use those or the the snow day that connects to these existential questions that we have uh- and make it into what we write.
1: I love, Tim, that you, you said the aroma of a symbol because something gets the aroma of a symbol when it when it enhanced the aroma, like the specific aromas of the story. Yeah. Mm. and I, So I love that you used that word. That's great. Mm. Should, should we move on or should we linger here? Yeah,
0: I just want to observe something to you, David. This is something, like for the last two weeks, this has been really important to you, This this distinction between symbol and image and i like that i think i think i appreciate that draw that you have like back to to like find the reality in the text that we're reading symbols later the reality first i think that's just such a great habit of a good reader
1: well one of the things that one of the reasons that matters to me i think is because i've been thinking a lot more about like Um, what does it mean to teach literature? Um, We're we're thinking about that all the time, right? That's like Mm -hmm. the constant thing that's on our mind, but also, you know, also to write it and to take part in it and all that. And I think that when you trade primarily in symbols, that's when you start that, if if you believe that symbols are the, the ultimate reality of literature or any kind of art, then the only way that you can approach it is by being, by having or being the interpreter and the memorizer and the communicator of symbolism, Right but like so you have to have like the only way you can do it then the only way you can experience it then is if you have the person who can do all that decoding for you but yeah but that's you know but anybody can read literature and like anybody can take part in it and you don't need to have all that memorized and you don't need need to know how to decode all of that to take part in it and that's sort of something that matters to me and that's i think what we teach our students that we'll go ahead go ahead
0: I think this like what you're advocating for is such a great way to view the Bible, which is, I mean, for for all of us who are Christians, um, it is so tempting to read the Bible as just sort of like layer upon layer upon layer of symbol. So um, Mm -hmm. it's tempting to forget that let's say in the seven days of creation on the seventh day, God rested. It's very tempting to read that as sort of like a symbol, symbolic of all sorts of things, symbolic of heaven, symbolic of, um, you know, the establishment of the Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about the people who were, if, the people who are telling the story to themselves are Israelites that are leaving Egypt, searching for the promised land, and they're wandering and wandering and wandering over blasted terrains. And all they do is walk, you know, with their lives on their back. Then like the possibility of just resting you know, like no symbol needed, just the possibility of resting has got to sound terrifically appealing. You know, Mm -hmm. that to me is sort of like that basic, um, drive toward, let's call it court realism. Um, that will reading, especially for me, the old Testament with a basic drive toward realism is the most illuminating way to read the Bible because it's It's so hard for me. I don't know if it is for you guys to read my Bible without having like 1800 voices (laughs) in the back Mm -hmm. of my head saying, this is what the seventh day of creation means. This is what this number in numbers means. This is what, you know, all these different things. And a lot of it can just be the simplest explanation is, well, what, what would it like feel like? What would the promise of this event be to the people who are actually in the story? before you start adding on the symbols on top of that, mm-hmm. on top of that story.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so I don't want to say that like, I'm not saying symbolism or like thinking about symbols or the tradition, all that kind of stuff is meaningless or it's, not worth addressing i'm just talking about where we start and i think absolutely so because what you the symbols and stuff allow for a a degree of conversation and they allow for the tradition to expand and evolve and for the, the the way we talk about literature and art to to kind of um evolve and expand as well but i i think i'm with you on that because when you like what what images allow us to do is to read difficult things um, within the context of human experience Um, and some symbols tend to make human you know images that that provide uh, the human context and they tend to take those and they tend to abstract them Um, because what you have to do for a symbol to have for something to have a symbol it has to have a name essentially I right. mean, like for us to be able to tread in, to be able to, for us to be able to communicate via symbols, we have to have a way of speaking them. Images don't have to be don't have to be named. Um, they can they can sort of be in the realm of the abstract because what you because they're constantly sort of like. I'm, so I'm getting into like some complicated stuff here. I'm trying to find the right words to do this in like one sentence so we can move on. So maybe it's something we should say, but um, I think that the more precise and the less abstract we can get. The better, right? I think that's what you're getting at there,
0: right? Right, that's a habit. I mean, it's a habit of a good writer, and I think it should transfer. It's that it's like the kind of like the first habit of a good reader is look for that image first, whether or not it has like a representative significance, i.e., a symbol. That's a second tier, important, absolutely important, but it's a um it's a second action rather than a first action.
1: Yeah. I mean, the symbology of it suggests that there's something specific you're looking for, whereas the image allows for the interpretation of human experience, or that is human experience. Mm -hmm. So you and I are going to bring, I'm not, no, this isn't like relativity, but relativism, but you and I are going to bring different things to something and images will mean different things to us. And that allows us each to participate in the life of that work before we have to start making it so particular that it excludes us yeah um anyway let's let's move on because i could talk about this forever Mm, me too (laughs) okay uh let's see here okay here there's one that was um someone mentioned a lighter one um this is erica what's with the use of the word giggling when describing the whiskey priest's priest's interactions the priest is often giggling and in several places it just felt like the wrong term to me out of place or off but surely it was intentional is it awkwardness is it the alcohol is it supposed to give insight into his character did anyone else notice this Mm-hmm. a couple people yes. said that they wondered the same thing and it bothered them.
0: Tim, go. I I took not it to as say. nervousness. <laughs> oh, no, I I took it as nervousness and um another instance of the whiskey priest not being uh someone like um he's not Atticus Finch.
3: Hmm. Can
0: you imagine Atticus I mean Atticus Finch is <laughs> such Atticus a lovely giggled. wonderful. Yeah, you like No, that's just not going to happen. It's another example of the whiskey priest is um, inadequate to his task and yet completely adequate to his task. Mm -hmm. That's how I took it.
2: Yeah, that's great. That was exactly, I, I, I thought a lot this past week after our conversation last week about uh, the hero, the traditional hero, and is, is Graham Greene subverting this? What does a saint mean? That, that whole conversation that we had uh, over the last few weeks about the heroism or lack thereof of of the priest and the giggling question to me ties into that maybe more than anything else. Now huh. I wouldn't say it's a symbol because like symbol a is part of collective consciousness, but in some ways it's an objective correlative, which is a way of saying in, in some kind of object or physical action, like a giggle uh, that captures something fundamentally true about what's going on in an embodied sense. So the the giggle makes him not only, it doesn't just humanize him. It's not just that he's not Achilles or Atticus Finch. It's that he's slightly ridiculous now
3: Mm -hmm, mm because
2: he's a grown man and a priest giggling at inappropriate moments. So he makes himself socially inappropriate through that action. And he, and it's very obvious in some sense that he's losing respect, of the people around him, people from his own parish, from Concepcion, those that because of it. So I think that's exactly it. It undermines his dignity, but as Graham Greene is so brilliant at doing, that becomes then a paradox that resolves in the fact that he has this ultimate dignity in this story. He attains that in some way too. But that is um, that, I mean, I don't like like someone who giggles at inappropriate moments, I'm slightly judgmental of those kinds of people. So slightly. Uh, yeah, just slightly, because I'm nice. But mm-hmm. um, um, Maybe I'm very, maybe I'm like, pull it together.
1: <laughs> Get it together. Get right. it together, man.
2: Yeah, so, um, but yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening. It's another way that he's subverting the traditional hero's role in just in action. It's kind of brilliant writing, actually.
1: I also hmm. think that giggling is both more precise and way less precise than the word laughter. And I yes. love that about it. Like you, yes. in some ways it feels like a little kid. And then in other ways it could mean so many, it could be, someone could laugh, could giggle in so many different ways that it, it's kind of like, it's both hilarious and terrible, to say, terrifying at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Dan wants to know, can the first prison scene be a picture of death rather than Gethsemane? Using Angelina's lessons about symbols, well, <laughs> for death, that's what it seemed like to me, and that there were many other souls down there with him. Um, okay, so I like that he asks, can there be a picture of death rather than Gethsemane? And then mentions the idea of symbols, because there is sort of a, there's a relationship between the two things. It's like the image and the symbols do go together, ultimately. Um, it's just kind of where you start. So I, I actually kind of like this idea, mm-hmm. this idea that it's a, uh, you know, like a cave or a, or a tomb or something like that. Um, and that there were many other souls down there with him. Um, Tim, what do you think of this? Did did we say that this was Gethsemane? Yeah, I, I didn't I, remember that saying that either. Okay, okay. Because I, I, I
0: don't yeah. think of... Heidi, you, you did say that? Us saying that?
2: Well, I did say that these two chapters were Gethsemane-like, for sure. This, the, well, it
1: just goes to prove yeah. that we all know that Tim and I don't actually listen when you speak. So, <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. <laughs>
2: But I did refer more to the Gethsemane as being in the chapter before. The Last Supper. No, that's not true. I did say this was a Gethsemane scene. No, but I think that death say works it, as well. it be both. <laughs> yeah. It, I was going to say death works as well. These symbols are, and these images, these ideas are so fluid. They're moving in and out yeah. from each other. Of course, I mean, if you're trapped in darkness and you can't get out thinking about death, go ahead and call it a death-like, tomb-like image, right? There's, there's... Yeah, so absolutely. Yes. We're, we are, I think we are supposed to, that's a strong statement. I think we're supposed to be thinking about this as, uh, as a continual death of self of the priest. So yes, this is a death image for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly, a, there's the Hades image in there. Mm-hmm. Um, Dante. Then,
0: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm so, you just said Dante. I was going to make a reference to Dante. I, I, When I read, let's say the Paradiso, all of it, but especially the Paradiso, it is the symbols that are incorporated into that epic are so precise. They are almost like geometrically arranged with each other. And Mm -hmm. if you displace one symbol, Mm -hmm. well, the entire kind of structure of the paradise becomes a little bit wobbly. And I think by juxtaposition, what Graham Greene does with symbols is it's, how do you use the word fluid? I think that's exactly right. It's, they're, they're elastic, they're fluid. It's not a structure. Yeah, it, doesn't solution.
1: Yeah, right. it doesn't all fall
0: down. Yeah, it doesn't all fall down. And it's, and it's really hard to say the prison surely means this. Well, it could mean Gethsemane. Or it could be, Jesus' descent into, yeah. um, you know, that's referenced in, is it 1 Peter chapter 2, where he goes to preach to the soldiers in prison. I mean, it could be that, but it's, it's like, it's potent because Graham Greene is so good at painting these pictures. It becomes really potent, but it's hard to kind of like nail down, okay, we know that this definitely strictly corresponds with that. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not. The kind of symbology that he's that he's trafficking in
2: right right well and like a lot of moderns he's he's drawing on the emotional weight of situations right if this even something like the beetles that we were just talking about this applies over here too that there's there's like beetles are gross nobody likes beetles so we, we feel something when Ooh, we read about them Canada being smashed does. against the wall. <laughs> yes, that's true. Actually, my daughter does too, and spiders. So kids are weird.
3: <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Don't trust yeah. <laughs> them. <Right.
2: laughs> but Debbie, to your point, that the feeling we get when we read about these people being shoved together in a room, uh, I do in a cell that's a death-like feeling. So it kind of draws on our collective unconsciousness about death. Uh, but also the Christian images and symbols that are universally acknowledged, um, lots of crosses and lots of three days and lots of things that if you're paying attention, you're going to connect it with the faith. Uh, and then also just how scared you would feel like there's, he's he's just so brilliant. Graham Greene is so brilliant. Mm-hmm. And if this particular scene is has a particular emotional weight to it. Yeah. There's blindness, there's darkness, there's uh, I mean just so much there that if if the question is can I read it like dot 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 the answer is probably going to be yes.
1: Yeah, right. Probably. Right. This man, I I'm going to have to think about To what extent, I think Graham Greene is trying to present a set of symbols in that scene. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I don't really think that he is. um, Unless, I I mean, I don't know. I mean, like Dante tries to do it in a certain way, but even Dante, you can read. I actually think we're getting at something here that I think is a flaw in Dante. But um, I think that Dante, you can still read for a narrative and you can still read it for the human experience of it and gets and it can be really meaningful even if you don't know every like historical figure or you know what every symbol represents sure and so i wonder here is he writing f- i mean is he trying to actually trade in the symbolism of the moment or is he or is what's happening that he is writing this scene that's very human and he is right He... And then, because he does that, because it actually is human, um, because he manages to capture that, it manages to um, express things in 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 terms that allows us to draw on symbols that have been um, part of our literary heritage for a long time. You know what I'm saying? Like, is he? Oh, yeah. I think I think that's probably more like what he's trying to do there. So I don't know that we should read. I don't know. I mean, I think. Because if, if he's trying to write a specific symbol in, then it can't be both Gethsemane and death, right? But if he's trying right. to create an image yes. that can be meaningful to us within our own human experience, both of those things can be per- totally meaningful and both work within the, the literary heritage that we've got to draw on.
2: Right. I I, I think that that's, that that's got to be it because so much of Graham Greene is like that, that his work is is so rich and dense and deeply layered with very emotionally loaded and intellectually weighted content. And he knew that, right? So I'm not, I don't think he just tried to like shove a bunch of stuff in there and say, figure it out, do what you want with it. I don't think that's it, but he is weaving a tapestry that has a lot of threads and colors in it that is if, if the question is, did he do it on purpose, which is my least favorite question in the whole world about books, my students ask me that all the time. Do you think Shakespeare did that on purpose? And I'm like, yes, actually, just because you thought of it today, doesn't mean that he did it by accident. Like, so.
1: That's so good. So good, Heidi. Or, but, or yes. the answer is, it doesn't matter.
2: Right. Which is another answer for sure, because, you know, it d- well, depends on what you, depends on what, what you angle think you're going to take. Intent, right.
1: So I'm not, I well, even if you think that author, in, okay. But even if you think that the author did intend to do that, like, do I really want my students to think about it that way? Right. That's a question. Yes. Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Like, I'm not saying right. that we shouldn't care that the, what the author tried to do, nor should we try to ascertain that or should it, nor that we shouldn't be interested in that. That's I, I love that kind of stuff, but it doesn't mean like that's not the only way of reading it, and it might not be the best use of the, the, the conversation in a given moment if, with your students. Absolutely,
2: completely agree. Well, and I think with Graham Greene, it, yes, I mean, no author is going to write a a story about people locked in a dark room and not think. Well, maybe they'll think it's a death image, right? Like that <laughs> right. is in the nature of. How he drew this particular chapter, mm. but there's lots of other things going on, too,
1: right, yeah, right, okay, um Lauren wants to know, is it significant that in the priest's final dream, he doesn't take the host but receives the cup, the wine? Yes, it is. I was reminded that the host is the body that was broken for you, quote, but the wine is the sign of the new covenant, and that it will be drunk with Christ in the kingdom. Would that make sense with this part of the story, as in the priest's sin has been paid for by Christ's blood, and he can enter the kingdom i yeah, I think she answered the question better yeah, than I was, I was going to say. I think we can. I think we can just say sure.
0: Yeah, that's a great. It's a great disagree. question.
2: No, I totally agree with that, and I think it's a reference to martyrdom too, like the the spilling of blood.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, um, here we go. Let's go. We're going to finish with this one, and then I've got a question for you, as people, as we finish up. Which do you think benefits the church more, the idealized hagiographies that praise courage and holiness or the brutally honest stories that show failures and sin? On the one hand, you said the hagiography speaks truth to power and illuminates virtue. But on the other hand, more realistic stories can make us feel like those virtues are attainable to the common man. Which do you think is most helpful to the body of believers? partly we're talking ideal types here right
2: yes was
3: gonna
1: so say if we'll have matt bianco
2: was on this show as he wanted to be you would answer that definitive. We'll have to
1: do a bonus conversation <laughs> with matt bianco where we talk about ideal types so should we save that question for a bonus bonus pod sure
0: i'm great with that all
1: right let's yep. do that let's save it we'll get Matt on sometime and we'll record 30 or 40 or minutes or hours on that topic with uh <laughs> With Matt because he has yes. much to say about that. And on much the forma, just... if you subscribe to forma uh, in the next couple of weeks, possibly this week, depending on what happens with my child, then we will um, we will be posting a conversation that Heidi and Matt had about ideal types. So if you subscribe, to that that will go by email to uh, as a, as a subscriber exclusive. Exclusive. And remember, you can do that for the same price that it costs you to buy one of those terrible old. Um, uh, pumpkin spice lattes, or one of, or one of Heidi's gas station, or
2: lattes. four yeah.
0: four <laughs> right. Or a, or a taquito. Do I hear
1: a taquito? Or some, like uh, or some taquitos, <laughs> or some Jolly Ranchers, <laughs> or or, <laughs> you or eat. some old spice deodorant, um, <laughs> which was what I was almost gonna say. So <laughs> Matt just walked in the room. But Matt, we're gonna do a bonus pod with you where we can just focus on that for the whole time because we're almost out of time. We'd only be able to do five minutes on it now. So we're gonna have you on to, to do a whole podcast on that. I think that should be hot. Yeah. I was just walking down the hallway and you I heard, heard your my name. name taken in vain. And I was like, what is going on in there? <laughs> <laughs> there?
2: Nobody was taking your name in vain. We were saying we need a whole That's conversation
0: I'll, with I'll do you.
1: A po- bonus podcast. Okay. All right. That'll be two now, though, because we have to do that other one for clear. Yeah. Well. Someday. I'm up for it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, well, we'll do that soon. Okay. Here's my last question for each of you then. This is uh, The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. We've talked a lot about Graham Greene, but we have not talked a lot about his other work. Do you... Where would you each... Or what book would you each recommend that people turn to if they want to read some more Graham Greene? What's the next thing that you would recommend? Tim, I'll let you go first on that. The End of the Affair. Give me one sentence of description or one sentence one sentence reason why or defense of Why?
0: Oh it's a great story. I that's a terrible <laughs> answer. It's a terrible answer. It's it is um it is beautiful because I think it, it that it takes the that it takes a traditional view of faith and it puts it in contrast with someone who seemingly cannot understand, just cannot understand. And it casts them in love with each other. That's mm-hmm. ripe.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Heidi, what would you say? What book?
2: I Well, so I'm not as familiar with the Graham Greene canon as I should be. I've only read three other of his books other than this. So I've only read four total and I know he has a vast canon. Um, but I absolutely concur. The End of the Affair has... There is a chapter in The End of the Affair that I think is the single greatest treatise on the power of the incarnation of Christ than anything I've ever read ever in my life. And I've, so
1: yeah, you've read Athanasius.
2: I guess, Well, <laughs> Athanasius gives it, a, it's probably better, but it's a different I, spin. Yes. It's a different, but do you guys know what I'm talking about? Right. In the end of the affair, when the, there's a character that goes into a church, she's, and, and it's mm. so, it's so magnificent. And, um, and also the end of the affair, the other great part, it, it, it has the same kind of emphasis on the cost of faith to like what it, what it costs a soul to be sick and be mm-hmm. so bent in on itself as C.S. Lewis calls it, that idea of being bent, that, that, um, what it costs a soul to pursue virtue when the soul is sick with sin. And the end of the affair is an exploration of that, um, and it's just very lovely. It's a bit explicit because it's about an affair. So be. Plus, warm. it's
1: shorter than the power and the glory.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. i it's a part of yeah. short books. Yeah. My recommendation, which would come as no surprise to anybody, it's uh, one of Graham Greene's spy novels, and it's called. Well, he's got a couple. Uh, he wrote a novella called the third man which became one of the greatest movies ever made um he actually got enlisted to write the screenplay for it it's with orson wells and joseph cotton um and then he decided oh i'll just write a novel first before i write the screenplay as an exercise so he wrote one of the great novellas ever but then also the confidential agent was one of the best early spy novels that led uh, you know the way for le carré and you know the bond stories and so many other ones so definitely rec- i recommend those so the high, uh, basically thrillers, he called them entertainments with great literary merit. So, all right, well, next week mm-hmm. we will be kicking off a conversation about, um, The Great Gatsby, and that's going to be with Angelina Stanford and a special guest, Adam Andrews from the Center for Lit. He loves this book, and so. Uh, we are going to be discussing that with him. Then we're going to have on the Shakespeare side on the plays, the thing we are going to be doing Henry the and you'll, we're going to take a couple weeks off um, just to get everything settled with my life. And then we'll come back and we'll do um, Henry the And I believe that's going to be the three of us on that, right?
2: Yeah. I'm excited.
1: Okay, cool. And Tim, is that true? Do we did I make that up just on the spot right there? I think I made it up. He, he seems to be not there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh i'm pretty sure that's it so and then also don't forget no, about, you
0: got jumbled i did not hear what you said because
1: i was just talking about that you're going to be on henry v with us right
0: <laughs> i think you made that up david
3: <laughs> uh, Wait.
1: i can't tell what's actually happening right now but, i don't um, know either so um Okay, so then there's so we are problem. gonna do Henry we're, the 5th we're fifth. gonna do Henry the fifth, yeah, <laughs> and then there's gonna be um, Tim just texted me. Don't ask me anything else. My inner web is dying. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, we're gonna do that. Don't forget about the daily poem and, uh, don't forget about a lot of the other content we have. Forma has lots of great content and we're also going to be launching. I'm just going to make an announcement here. We're going to be launching a show called Libro mania, which is going to be a book for, or a podcast for book nerds. I'm going to be interviewing authors about their own books and their own process. I'm going to be interviewing people about the lives of famous authors. I'm going to be interviewing people about book nerd stuff, like book design. Why, why books smell the way they do. So book science, book design, book layout, book cover design, um, all that kind of stuff, uh, running a library, working in a bookstore. So it's gonna be all kinds of stuff that's related to just book obsession. So, um, that feed will be up soon and you can subscribe to that, but I wanted to get, let you guys, all of you who listen to close reads know that that is coming. Um, and with that, that's it. Um, Heidi, do you have anything else you want to add?
2: I have nothing else to add.
1: Okay. All right. Well, for Tim, who has disappeared into the <laughs> worldwide web. Into for, the real world. Into <laughs> the real world, yeah. <laughs> and for Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Network and at the SIRC Institute, thanks so much for listening. And we will be back next week as we begin our conversation of The Great Gatsby. Happy reading.